0: Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show we take a look at the draw for the group stage of qualifying for the 2022 FIFA World Cup with some tricky groups there. Also, we ask whether African companies should be funding European football, as Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangotti, says that he remains committed to a takeover bid of English club Arsenal. And Stuart has some fascinating research on whether it pays to fire
1: your manager mid-season if your club is in trouble. They looked at 25 occasions in the last nine years when a club has sacked their manager mid-season. And on 20 of those 25 occasions, the club did not improve. That's coming later and Stewart also looks at whether the English Premier League is
0: really the most competitive in the world. Well, let's start with the 2022 FIFA World Cup as 40 African countries are in the running for the five slots for Africa in Qatar. Uh, by the way, there will be nine slots from 2026, but not for this next edition. Uh, the draw is made on Tuesday for the second phase of qualifying for Africa with 10 groups of four teams and the 10 group winners go through to the final playoff round. Uh, the first matches will be in October. Now, Group D is perhaps the toughest as it has two heavyweights in Cameroon and and Ivory Coast along with Mozambique and Malawi. Not much chance for Mozambique and Malawi you might think well here's the Malawi coach Meke Mwase
2: That's the challenge that we're going to face uh, as Malawi we need to grow uh, we've been paired with those uh, famous teams uh, and we can only take it from there that uh, we grow uh, we have played uh, Cameroon before, he had form of drawn. it's a game of football, anything can happen but we can only give ourselves the confidence that we can do it. The good thing that we can have on this group is that we, the boys will grow, uh, who have the, the feel of playing with these big teams and come up with a, a proper strategy when we're meeting uh, the Continental Games here in, home in Malawi.
0: Yes, it's all part of a learning process. That's Malawi's coach Meke Mwase, himself a former national team player with the Flames. Uh, On WhatsApp, Cherno Jallo in the Gambia says what an interesting draw. Cameroon and Ivory Coast in the same group. For me, that's the group of death, says Cherno. And furthermore, I believe Egypt and Nigeria have better chances of going through in their respective groups. Uh, Yes, Nigeria drawn with Cape Verde, Central African Republic and Liberia. They're in group C and Egypt are in group F. with Gabon, Libya, and Angola. So it looks as though they probably won't be troubled. Now, Group E has Mali plus three East African teams with Uganda, Kenya, and Rwanda. And we're in a tough group here in Zimbabwe, in Group G with Ghana, South Africa, and Ethiopia. So your thoughts on the draw, Ida?
2: Well, um, in the first place, Steve, remember, these qualifiers were meant to start in March. Uh, but, of course, with the uh, Africa Cup of Nations change, they will have to start in October. But um, that notwithstanding, I mean, we'll definitely um, get to miss out on either Cameroon or Ivory Coast. That we know for sure by now um, at the World Cup since they have been pulled together And you know, what some people are feeling is a very early stage for two such, um, you know, iconic teams in African football to be grouped together. Group E, as the Malawi coach has said there, definitely, Steve, won't be easy. I wouldn't call Rwanda a football powerhouse per se, you know, Uh, but Uganda and Kenya, look, both teams sure to be buoyed by their recent participation in the last Nations Cup, and especially Uganda, Steve, who got in a very, very decent run in uh, the tournament. And of course, there's always serious emotion. I mean, not everyone might be too aware of this, but there's always serious very serious emotion any time Uganda and Kenya lock horns. Um, of course, that being courtesy of the fact that they are neighbors in East Africa. Though, in my personal opinion, and I think it has to be said, that Ugandan football has really come from behind and is now light years ahead of Kenya's, in all honesty. Uh, but looking at the team, Steve, that represented Africa at the last showpiece, that being uh, Senegal, Egypt. Uh, Morocco, Nigeria, and Tunisia, well, I don't really see a problem for any of them at this preliminary round of uh, qualification, but um, I do think that things will get challenging in uh, the next round where, you know, I'm sure that other teams, you know, we're talking maybe the likes of African champions, Algeria, will come challenging. I mean, that's a given, Um, And don't forget as well that uh, when we talk about Ghana, their new coach will definitely want to give a good account and uh, will want to get off to a positive start. Steve, I think that another World Cup without uh, the Black Stars will surely be the final confirmation, Steve, for anyone who might have been in doubt of the country's declining football status. So, you know, they really do have quite a challenge ahead of them. Although, Steve, I do think that, you know, after the beauty that we saw from underdogs in the 2019 Afghan, I would really love to see a team that no one is even thinking of, you know, going all the way to the World Cup in 2022. But Ultimately, I do think that the next round, not necessarily this one, but the next one is what will really, really bring the heat.
0: Yes, the winners of those 10 groups maybe are not that hard to predict, but that final playoff round where the winners of the ties go through to the World Cup, uh, well, that is going to be something else. Now one very interesting recent story is that Africa's richest man Aliko Dangote said that he remains committed to a takeover bid of English club Arsenal with the target now next year rather than this year. The Nigerian billionaire made his fortune after founding Dangote Cement, that's Africa's largest cement producer, and his Dangote refinery is set to be one of the world's largest oil refineries. It's still under construction, hence he's delayed his Gunners' takeover bid, but it looks like a serious plan, with Arsenal's owner Stan Kroenke unpopular with the fans as he's rarely seen at matches. Now, the Quartz Africa website estimates that brands targeting customers in African countries and African-owned brands spend over $40 million a year with partnerships with some of the world's richest clubs – So you may well have seen the Visit Rwanda logo on the Arsenal kit. That's a tourism initiative. East African betting company Sport PESA has a deal with Everton. Alex Bank of Egypt is a partner with Liverpool. Nigeria's star beer with Manchester City. This, of course, when a great many African clubs and leagues are struggling financially. So, Ida, Dangote's proposed Ghana's takeover and the rest of these are all business deals, of course, not charitable donations. But it still hurts to see the money going from Africa to Europe when football really needs the money here.
2: I mean, Steve, this is one of those things that's pretty relative. And it's a conversation that often sees me side with the corporates, and I'll tell you why. At least according to me, these private entities don't owe local sport a single thing, Steve, not a one. And I do think that the day that sports administrators adopt this sort of logic of self-sustainability, then, and only then, will the game change. Because, you know... As opposed to what many people think, Steve, it's actually the other way around. The football stakeholders should be striving to make their clubs so attractive that the sponsors come flocking. Everyone talks about the Premier League being so marketable. It's this amazing commercial commodity. You know, companies are falling besides themselves, trying to be associated with a brand. I mean, Steve, the Premier League is at a point where they even have sponsors for the tractors of the stadium pitches, you know. And uh, in an interview with uh, Nigeria's Vanguard, um, ex-Super Eagles midfielder, um, Etim Esin said that Africa's richest man, that being Dangote, can change the face of Nigerian football if you wanted to. But then One would also argue, Steve, that these investors are really free to take their money where they see a proper return on investment. But look, um, talking about Dangote... About Arsenal, well, earliest reports of uh, Dangote's interest were all the way back in 2015. That's six years ago. And uh, by this point, I would really rather talking uh, be talking about a possible move or an actual move he's made as opposed to more talk from the billionaire's camp. Um, As to how the Gunners would actually receive an African owner, well, look, I mean, Arsenal has been one of the most, if not actually the most, pro-black top-flight European clubs. So I don't think that would be the biggest issue.
0: Yes, well, so we'll see if Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangote, will take over Arsenal next year. But it's a big question, should African companies be funding European football? Ida says that they don't owe African football anything and it's their own money after all, so they can do what they want with it. But also, as Ida mentioned, Dangote has the capacity to change the face of Nigerian football if he so wanted. So uh, to me, it uh, kind of hurts a bit. So asking for your thoughts on this on social media this week, should African companies be funding European football? The Quartz Africa website estimates that brands targeting customers in African countries and African-owned brands spend over $40 million a year with partnerships with some of the world's richest clubs. At the same time, many African clubs and leagues are struggling financially, so should African companies be funding European football when the money's really needed in Africa? You can go to our Facebook page and post a comment there, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send Send us a WhatsApp to plus 447955232780. That's plus 447955232780. Should African companies be funding European football? Now last week on social media we talked about the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations which has been moved to January and February in Cameroon. It was scheduled to take place in June and July but was changed because of the unfavourable weather in the country at that time of the year. Now last year's Nations Cup was held in June and July for the first time in Egypt and it went well. The change back to a January start means that the tournament will not clash with the expanded Club World Cup being played in China in June 2021, but it will take us back to the club versus country rows, as the Europe-based players will be away from their clubs for up to six weeks. So we ask what do you think about the change of dates? Here's Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard. Thanks Steve and we
3: start today on Facebook and Mojalefa Dube in South Africa is not a fan of this decision. Sadio Mane and Mo Salah will be affected by this stupid and sudden change, says Mojalefa. Yes, that's true and uh, indeed all European-based players will be similarly affected. On to WhatsApp now and in Sierra Leone, Ishmael Saidu Kanu says, I don't think they should have changed it. Africa is always inconsistent. I feel for African players in Europe who will have to adapt. Lamine Cham got in touch from Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. CAF don't want to tell us the actual reason for the change of date, says Lamine. The weather here in Central Africa is actually super friendly in June and July, better than at any other time of the year. Haruna Cham in The Gambia says the January schedule will not help the European clubs because most of them are having African stars such as Mo Salah, Sadio Mane and others. And Moenda Zambre in Zambia also agrees. This is not fair, says Moenda. It disturbs a lot as three quarters of the players play in Europe. Meanwhile, Obinna in Nigeria believes the new dates will stop European clubs from signing African players. I don't think it's a good move for African players, especially the ones based in Europe, says Obinna. European clubs will be hesitant to sign African players because of their proposed absence from their leagues for up to six weeks. Bearing this recent development in mind, it will make European clubs think twice before signing an African player at the moment. It's a ridiculous development. However, Lazino in Ghana takes a different view. It's not bad to change the date. It's a good thing, says Lazino. And Noble Botamani in Malawi agrees. The 2021 AFCON change of dates is a good idea, says Noble. Bobby Brown in the Gambia is also in favour. It's really good to play it in January and February, says Bobby, because over there the weather conditions are not stable later in the year. Ephrathar Kamanga in Malawi agrees that the weather is a big consideration. The change is good, says Ephrathar, because when playing a tournament like this you must consider the weather first. After all, the top players will be there for the whole six weeks, and it's good and nice to play football in a favourable environment. And in The Gambia, Abdullahi so agrees with the earlier date for the competition. I think holding it in January and February would yield better results for the countries and the players, says Abdullahi, although the organisers will need to make some adjustments to meet their goal. However, I'm sure it would be a better move for both players, organisers and the coaches. And also in The Gambia, Essa Jenner is equally positive about the earlier dates. I don't think it's a bad idea, says Essa. Cameroon is a tropical country and we all know they experience high rainfall from June to September. So playing a tournament there at that time may bring a lot of setbacks. On the other hand, playing the tournament in January and February is an advantage to both the players and their respective teams as it will not clash with the expanded Club World Cup. And finally, Jeffrey in Uganda says... I think the reason given for changing back to the earlier dates is justifiable. In any case, why should we Africans give preference to European clubs over our motherland? I don't want to sound segregative, neither a racist, but I believe here in Africa we should learn to be more proud of ourselves. So then, Steve, our responses this week were split almost equally half and half, with some strong views expressed on both sides, which is what we'd expect. So let's hope anyway that Caff's decision, now that it has been made, turns out to be a good one in the
0: end. Well, thanks, Adrian, and uh, let's hope so. Uh, Now, the Gambia coach, Tom Sanfier, said he's not happy as it makes this year really congested with international matches and it also costs opportunities for friendlies where he's been hoping to try out new players. It's going to be very, very packed with those World Cup qualifiers in October and November and just a few weeks before the Nations Cup. And there's been reaction to this in Europe from the likes of Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, who's described the return to January-February for the Nations Cup as a catastrophe. Catastrophe for his club. Now, Stuart Weir joins us from the UK. Uh, No confirmation as to whether the Nations Cup switch back to January-February will become permanent, but it does look very possible. And one big concern is whether European clubs will become less likely to sign top African players, Stuart.
1: Well, I don't think that Jurgen Klopp is exaggerating when he says that holding the AFCON in January-February would be a catastrophe for Liverpool FC. Just think about how many goals Sadio Mane and Mo Salah have scored for Liverpool over the past few seasons. To lose both his main strikers for up to six weeks would be extremely difficult for Liverpool to cope with. You know, it was said that Alex Ferguson was always reluctant to sign African players at Manchester United for that very reason, that he didn't want to lose key players for up to six weeks of a season. So, As Obina in Nigeria says, I can see more Premier League clubs following Ferguson's example and being reluctant to sign players who will not be available for the full season. I think, too, that we could see African players being put under pressure from clubs to retire from international football. Of course, under FIFA regulations, players must be released for the tournament. But imagine contract negotiations and the club offering the player more money, or a longer contract if he ends his international career in order to be available all season. Now, Jeffrey in Uganda says, why should we Africans give preference to European clubs over our motherland? I understand that totally. But looking at it from a player's point of view, in a short career, if he has to choose between playing in the AFCON and earning a lot more money and signing for a really big club or getting a longer contract, but only if he's available all season, it really isn't simple. I remember a few years ago, Yaya Torre saying that he had gone off to the AFCON with Manchester City top of the league, playing in the FA Cup and in the League Cup. He had returned a month later to find that they were no longer top of the league and they'd been knocked out of both cup competitions. And the season was effectively over. We've talked several times about the size of Premier League squads, sometimes 35 players. And again, if you're not one of the star players, you may feel that going to AFCON for a month would give your replacement or your rival for a place a great opportunity to take over the place, and you may find it difficult getting back in. So, overall, I understand how important the Africa Cup of Nations is to many African fans, and I understand the reasons for wanting to hold it in January, February. But speaking from a Premier League or European perspective, it raises very big questions for players and clubs in
0: Europe. Yes, and I can see that option of retiring from international football becoming perhaps more common for top African players. Thanks, Stuart. We'll keep following this story. And by the way, on next week's show, we'll have an update on preparations for the 2021 Nations Cup and also for this year's CHAN, the African Nations Championship, both being hosted by Cameroon. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And You can download our app and listen to the show any time and access past programmes too in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Well, to the English Premier League now, and while Liverpool are continuing to run away with the league, there's concern for clubs down at the bottom, with avoiding relegation being so important for teams financially. We've had some clubs firing their managers already. Indeed, not just with clubs fighting relegation, but the likes of Tottenham and Everton too. Uh, So, Stuart, does it pay to sack
1: your manager mid-season? Well, that's a really interesting question, Steve. And certainly when a club is threatened with relegation, the response of the owners is often to change the manager. And this season, as you say, we've seen West Ham, Watford and Everton make a managerial change because they were worried about their league position. I recently came across some Sunday Times research into whether changing the manager is effective. They looked at 25 occasions in the last nine years when a club has sacked their manager mid-season. And on 20 of those 25 occasions, the club did not improve under the new manager. So that's 80% of the times the club did not finish higher than at the point when they sacked the manager. And of the five occasions when the managerial change made a difference, twice it was only one place. So you could say hardly worth the turmoil. So effectively, that's three out of 25 managerial changes had any real effect. And of the 25 clubs making the change because they feared relegation, 13 of them were relegated in any case. Now, that's the statistics. Let me give you some specific examples. Last year, there were three. Huddersfield Town were in the relegation zone in January and they sacked David Wagner. They were still relegated. Fulham sacked Claudio Ranieri in February when they were in the relegation zone and they stayed in the relegation zone. But the one success last year was Leicester City where Brendan Rodgers was appointed in February to replace Claude Puel when the club was in 12th position and they finished 9th. And going back to the previous season, that's uh, 2017-18, there were four managerial changes. West Brom sacked Alan Pardew in April when they were bottom and they were still relegated. Stoke City dispensed with the services of Mark Hughes in January when they were in the relegation zone, and they stayed in the relegation zone and were relegated. Watford sacked Marco Silva in January, and while they stayed in the Premier League, the actually finished four places lower than at the point when Silva was sacked. And Southampton sacked Maurizio Pellegrino in March when they were one place above the relegation, and they finished one place above relegation. So the evidence would suggest that in most cases, changing the manager mid-season does not achieve its purpose. Well, that's really, really
0: interesting. Thanks, Stuart. So firing the manager is uh, certainly not an easy route to improve your fortunes. And uh, Stuart, the English Premier League is seen by most as the world's most exciting league. It's the best funded, it's got the best players and the most exhilarating football to watch. Have you got some thoughts on whether the Premier League is really the most competitive
1: league in the world? Well, it's certainly true, Steve, that in England, we like to say that the Premier League is the greatest league in the world and the most competitive league, a league in which there are no easy games. But if you look at the last two seasons, they've been quite strange. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, does the evidence really support an assertion that the English Premier League is stronger in depth than La Liga or Italy's Serie A, to take two examples? Last season, you will recall, we thought was very strange with Manchester City getting 98 points to win the league from Liverpool, who had 97. And Chelsea in third place were 25 points behind that. Last year, we reflected on this strange situation when two clubs seemed to dominate the entire league. And I, for one, said it was unlikely to happen again. But then this season is just as strange in its own way. Liverpool have won 21 off their first 22 games to open up a 16 point lead over Manchester City. And I mean, if you look at Manchester United in fifth place, incredibly, they're 30 points behind Liverpool. And we have 10 clubs in places 5 to 14, that is Manchester United to Burnley, and they're separated by only seven points. So I think no one can doubt the quality of Liverpool or Manchester City at their best. But, of course, City have been quite inconsistent and have already lost five games this season. And, you know, I commented in my preview of the Champions League last 16 how good it is to have four English clubs among the top 16 in Europe. But can we say that all four clubs are realistic Champions League semi-finalists, let alone finalists or winners? Liverpool the holder, certainly. But Manchester City have never really come close to winning the Champions League. And the fact that Chelsea are looking not remotely on a par with Liverpool, having already lost eight times in the Premier League in 23 games, is not really the form that would frighten Real Madrid or Barcelona, you would think. And Tottenham, in eighth position, are frankly struggling to qualify for next year's Europa League, let alone the Champions League. And you'd have to be an incredible optimist to think that they can equal last year's feat of reaching the Champions League final. Just in terms of this gulf and standards that I'm talking about, when you see a team like West Ham losing 5-0 at home to Manchester City and Aston Villa losing 6-1 at home to City, Southampton beaten 9-0 at home by Leicester City and Watford beaten 8-0 by Manchester City. Liverpool put 5 past Everton and 4 past Leicester. You know, we used to talk about any club in the Premier League being able to beat any other club there being no easy games. But see, I'm not sure that's the case anymore when you see teams winning 9-0, 8-0, 5-0, 6-1. Last season, Liverpool and Manchester City were significantly superior to everyone else. This season, Liverpool look head and shoulders above the rest. And arguably, Manchester City and Liverpool have in Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp the two best managers in the league and probably the strongest squads. Below them, I would say that you have Leicester City, Chelsea and Manchester United battling for the other two top four places and Champions League qualification. Then there's a group of teams like Wolves, Sheffield United, Tottenham, Arsenal, Crystal Palace, Everton who cannot realistically aspire to the top four. And you might say that they have their own league to decide which two of them will get into the Europa League. You know, When we asked recently on social media who would be relegated, I remember one respondent saying that everyone in the bottom half of the table was looking over their shoulder. And I think that's absolutely true. While Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich are currently the bottom three, frankly, it wouldn't surprise you if any of West Ham, Brighton, Burnley or even Southampton dropped into the relegation places. And as I said earlier, that Manchester City can win Premier League games by five, six or eight goals. illustrate illustrates the gap and suggests that the quality of the Premier League overall has probably dropped in the last few years.
0: Well, that'll certainly come as a surprise, but uh, I guess those stats on the dominance at the top do say a lot. And uh, just finally, a bit of a gem you have for
1: us there, Stuart. Um, Steve, between 1973... In 1988, a 15-year period, West Ham used four goalkeepers, Mervyn Day, Bobby Ferguson, Phil Parks and Tom McAllister. Would you believe it that in their last six league games, West Ham used four goalkeepers, Lucas Fabianski, David Martin, Roberto and Darren Randolph. Isn't this remarkable that they went 15 years with just four goalkeepers and now this season four goals, but it only lasted them six games. (laughs) That's amazing indeed. Well, just before we go, exciting
0: times for football fans in Tanzania, as Mwana Samata will become the first player from Tanzania to feature in the English Premier League, having been signed by Aston Villa. He's a great player. I remember he destroyed Zimbabwe in qualifying for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations in a two-legged preliminary tie. Got to see him here in Harare. That was back in 2014. And he's shone ever since, uh, going to TP Mazembe, at Genk in Belgium. And now to Aston Villa. We wish Mbwana Samata all the best. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So, from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir and Adrian Barnard in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.